0: Some of you may be familiar with the author Andrew Weir. Uh, he uh, kind of came out into national prominence a few years ago with his blockbuster bestseller The Martian. Uh, it was a work of fiction, and his uh, second volume, uh, his, se- his second novel as a follow-up to that was Artemis, and his third was Hail Mary. came out just uh, sometime last year. Uh, Hail Mary is the story of a gentleman by the name of Ryland Grace. This is a novel. It's all fiction. A guy by, by, by the name of Ryland Grace. Uh, Ryland Grace is on this uh, rocket ship hurtling out into outer space. Uh, he has a daunting task uh, in front of him, a twofold task, a nearly impossible task. He is, being, he, he is coming to understand that he needs to solve, on the one hand an impossible, what a seemingly impossible scientific mystery, and at the same time to conquer a global extinction threat for all life on planet Earth. High stakes, wouldn't you say? Uh, here's the problem, as though that's not daunting enough, as though that's not a, high, uh, uh, a big calling enough, a big enough of a problem. He has an even worse problem in the fact that at the very beginning of the book, he's waking up from a, uh, a coma And he can't remember anything. He can't remember even his own name to say nothing of this cataclysmic assignment that is in front of him. Quite literally, Ryland Grace is struggling to know why he is there and what he is to do. When you think about it, that's where we are oftentimes as well, struggling to know why we're here and what it is that we are to do. And by that, I don't just mean the culture surrounding us. I think that's actually true of the church as well. So oftentimes struggling to know why we are here and what it is that we are to do, which then brings us to our text, Leviticus 18. We're continuing on in this, in this study through the book of Leviticus uh, and hitting the high points, and so that's where we are today. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 30. Uh, let me give you, as I have the last several weeks, some trail markers as, as we go, just to kind of get, get a sense as to where this is, is going. So verses, we have, you might see some bookends. Verses 1 to 5 is, is the first set, and then uh, there towards the end, verses 24 to 30. Now, verses 1 to 5 is a clear call from the Lord to heed His word and not give in to the pressure of the surrounding culture. Okay, that's verses 1 to 5. Then you move into the heart of it, verses 6 to 23. We're gonna read all of this. Verses 6 to 23, and these are commands to avoid um, illicit sexual practices. Then you move into the other book in, which is something very, very similar as to the, the first, verses uh, 23, excuse me, 24 to 30. And it's a reiteration of the need to heed and follow the Lord's commands and not give in to the pressures of the culture around you, especially pertaining to the commands of what we're going to read here in chapter 18. Okay? So, Leviticus chapter 18, starting in verse 1, reading on down through verse 30. Hear now God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do, in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. "'You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, "'which is the nakedness of your mother. "'She is your mother, you shall not uncover her nakedness. "'You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, "'it is your father's nakedness. "'You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, "'your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, "'whether brought up in the family or in another home. "'You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter "'or of your daughter's daughter, "'for their nakedness is your own nakedness.' "'You shall not uncover the nakedness "'of your father's wife's daughter "'brought up in your father's family, "'since she is your sister. "'You shall not uncover the nakedness "'of your father's sister. "'She is your father's relative. "'You shall not uncover the nakedness "'of your mother's sister, "'for she is your mother's relative. "'You shall not uncover the nakedness "'of your father's brother. "'That is, you shall not approach his wife. "'She is your aunt. "'You shall not uncover the nakedness "'of your daughter-in-law. "'She is your son's wife.' You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. You shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with an animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving up before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God." Okay, let's stop for a moment to pray. Lord, as the prophet says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And we are very much like grass and flowers, and so too are our opinions and the assumptions and demands that we bring to the table. We ask that you would help us to be humble, to listen, uh, not to me, but to you, uh, to you as you're speaking to us by your Spirit, through your Word. And we thank you that we could be so bold as to ask, indeed, that you would do that now, that you would speak to our hearts, to our hearts, by your Spirit, through your Word. In your name we pray, amen. A few years ago... Uh, On a trip to Israel uh, with a tour group that I was a part of, we went down to the area of the Dead Sea. And while we were down in that area, we visited the ruins of the Qumran community. And this is where a group of Jewish people back in the time of Jesus lived called the Essenes. And the Essenes were like some of the other groups that you read of in the New Testament, you don't read of the Essenes in the New Testament, but you read of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and another group were the Zealots and this group were the Essenes. And the Essenes were known at the time for having taken great offense at the great corruption of the priesthood in Jerusalem. And so they decided to flee from all that into the wilderness, down into the Dead Sea area and form this community that you can still see the ruins of today. What were the Essenes about? They were committed to moral purity. They were committed to true community. They were committed to the study of um, uh, divine texts and the preservation of those texts. And it's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls today. The problem is, is that the Essenes, who called themselves the sons of light shed no light. They had hid themselves, again, in this wilderness and wanted nothing to do with the rest of the world. And that was a problem, a real problem. Which brings us now to Leviticus 18. Now, up to this point in the study through this book, for the most part, we have been honing in on laws pretty much uh, only directly pertaining to tabernacle. And now you hit this shift, a shift in the book, verses 18 through 20, where you begin to look into what are referred to by some scholars, some commentators, as the holiness codes. And that is to say what it means to be called out, what it means to be set aside as the people of God in that time what it means to, to be his own. Uh, and you see this, for instance, it's repeated again and again. For instance, in uh, chapter 19, verse 2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that's the theme of that whole section. You could really make a case that's the theme of the book of Leviticus. But it comes out so clearly here in this section. Uh, another way to think about that is Israel was called to be as you read in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests, a a holy nation, again, called out by God for His holy purposes in this world. They were to mediate God's presence, to mediate God's blessing, blessing in the midst of, for the sake of, the nations around them. And that calling for God's people to be a holy, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, has not changed. His people still today, we, if if in fact those of us here this morning who are followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, we still are to be a kingdom of priests, a a holy nation that still holds. In fact, we go so far as to say this, that the Lord has called us out, every one of us, if we in fact are followers of Jesus, to be a kingdom of priests, and this has implications for every area of life. You could say the person and every part of their life is called out as a kingdom of priests and it has implications for every area of life, including the most personal. Hello, Leviticus 18. Including the most personal areas, aspects, arenas of our lives. And I don't doubt, no few of you picked up on the fact that a lot of this chapter is about sexual intimacy and, and a hot button of our day, homosexuality. And we need to talk about it. God's Word addresses it. We need to to talk about it. Now, what I want to do for the next few minutes is to build slowly. Okay? Three points. The first one being the deep undercurrents of the text. I'll explain what I mean by that as we go. The deep, But starting with the deep undercurrents of the text and then building from there to the particular boundaries that we see set forth here in the chapter... And then also then from there, moving into specific concerns, okay? So starting with the deep undercurrents, moving to particular boundaries, and then the specific concerns. So the deep undercurrents. What I mean by that is if, if you were an Israelite man or woman or child, what would you know? What would you already know before you even heard Leviticus 18 read? Or if you're a 21st century Bible reader and you've just sat down and started with Genesis 1, read all the way through, didn't stop, read the book of Exodus, then you start reading Leviticus, what do you know? What do you know to be true? Well, you know origins. You know where you've come from, which has to do with creation. God's purpose in creation was his own pleasure. His own pleasure to share of himself and for the sake of the flourishing of those that he's made. Which then tells you something about the nature of his commands. Right? Has something to do with our flourishing. We'll get to come back to that in a minute. So you know something about creation, you know something about the exodus. So 400 years, you know, your ancestors were uh, in bondage and slavery in, in Egypt. God, in, in, in a great, miraculous series of miraculous works, is, frees us, redeems us. You hear, hear allusions to that, even in the, the opening words of the text, in, the, in this uh, prologue here, the number of times it's repeated. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God an allusion back to the, to the past and even to the present as well. The idea being that, that all of his commands are meant to be a guided response to his love. This is what it looks like to be in relationship to me, which again tells us something about the nature of his commands. A guided response to his love. We'll talk about that some more as we go. So we know something about our origin. We know something about where we came from. We know something about our mission. We know something about why we're here, what, what we're for I've alluded to something of that already, but we know if, if we're hearing this for well, you know, for the first time, but with the deep undercurrents in mind, we know that we have been called out from the nations for the nations, from the nations for the nations to be holy as a called out people, which is what holiness is about. Having been set aside, having been set apart, having been called out for his purposes. Now, how would his purposes come to be accomplished? Through obedience to his commands. We see that in verse 5. It was uh, alluded to with what Anna read earlier from Deuteronomy 4. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them. He shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, that's not the sense in which if you put the coin in the bubble gum machine, you get life. It's not what, that's not what he means. Moses means at all there in repeating what the Lord has said. He's saying, look, in following the Lord's commands, you will know flourishing because you are living according to the designer's specs. That's what it means. You will live. That's what that means. Or as Jay Scholar puts it in his commentary at this point. His commands are like the borders of his kingdom. And those who stay within those borders proclaim their allegiance to him as king and remain within the sphere of his blessing. And the idea being as we live within that sphere, others will be drawn. Others will be attracted to this life and this life indeed, this flourishing. So those are some of the deep undercurrents that we're seeing here. And Jesus taps into this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to keep your thumb here in uh, Leviticus 18 and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, after the Beatitudes, where Jesus describes what the characteristics are to be of all of his followers, he then moves quickly into what the impact will be upon the the watching world as we live out in a, a Beatitudinal lifestyle. And he says in verses 13 through 16, it's on the screen, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So this is, you could say, an astonishing calling with obvious conditions. An astonishing calling with obvious conditions. You are my people. You are to be salt, to come alongside and to prevent decay, further decay in this world. You are to be light, to live among and to pierce the darkness. That's who you are. And that's what your calling is. That's your astonishing calling. But there are conditions. This presupposes that you are not giving in to moral compromise. You know, the salt losing its saltiness. It presupposes that you are not falling in love with the idols of this age, what Francis Schaeffer oftentimes referred to as personal peace and affluence. It assumes that we're not bowing down to those idols. This is an astonishing calling, but with, with conditions, with conditions. We are to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. And that has implications for all of life. Okay. Those are the deep undercurrents, okay? Now let's move into point two, uh, picking up now with a particular boundaries. This more, getting a little bit more specific now, coming down from you know, 10,000 feet, maybe we're down to about 1,000 feet, okay? So now looking at the chapter, the particular boundaries that we see here sketched out, uh, see sketched out here, again, you see something of the stakes in the bookends, verses one to five, and uh, verses 24 to 30, where the Lord is laying this out so clearly as to why this is so important. Now, the prohibitions themselves, as you see there in uh, verses 6 through 23. I'm not going to repeat them. That was a long enough reading as it was. Uh, but I do want to just make some, just point a few things out. And, and, and the first is uh, to clarify, uh, well, you, you, I'm sure you saw this phrase. You heard, it, heard me read it, and who knows how many times I didn't actually count it. The number of times that Moses says we're forbidden to uncover the nakedness. Now, what on earth does that mean? That's a strange way of putting something, isn't it? Please know that is not an allusion to voyeurism. That's not what it's an ancient Hebrew euphemism for sexual intercourse. That's what the phrase means to uncover the nakedness, all right? And then you see that applied in several different arenas, all of which are illicit or ruled out incest adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality, all of these meant to define the boundaries of sexual intimacy, including even, you're like, well, how does child sacrifice fit in that? Because oftentimes, the product, the result of human heterosexual intimacy are children. And so, that comes to play in the course of this passage in what is forbidden. Those are the prohibitions. What's the rationale? What's the reasoning? What's the justification uh, for this? At least twofold. First, to warn. To warn. And you see that here in the text to warn of the inevitable consequences of being cut off from God's people, or as he says, vomited out of the land. So, to warn but also to warn of the surrounding influences. You know, this is how the people that you lived among in Egypt lived. This is how the people that you are going towards, the, the, the land of Canaan, this is how they live. You must not do this. You must not live according to their ways, but according to my ways. So first, to warn, but secondly, to protect. To protect think with me, to protect the most vulnerable against unwanted advances. When you think about who's being addressed and why that the powerful would not prey on the weak, that's one of the reasons to protect, to protect not just the vulnerable, but to protect the integrity and stability of the family unit. That's another reason here also to protect I've alluded to this already individual and communal life flourishing according to his design and his intent as to how we're meant to be protect to warn and protect so in this we see these necessary and particular boundaries set forth the christian sex ethic is not just about no that's what we all sometimes think right and that's our reputation in the world. The Christian sex ethic is about the negative. Don't do this. Don't do that. That's a horrible character, caricature that we've created. It's rather a glorious yes, a yes to something that therein entails, by extension, a no. What would that vision, that glorious yes, be? Well, the, the vision is that sex is meant for a man and a woman bound together in the vows of marriage. That's what it's for. Now, in that, there's great significance. Now, I mean that literally, in that, the meaning of that word, in that it is signifying something. It is meant to point towards something. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her wonderful book, The Secular Creed, puts it this way as she's reflecting on the, Paul's words to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5. This is what she writes. The point of human marriage from the very start was to give us a picture of Jesus' love. Park that for a minute. The signpost to Christ is why marriage is male and female and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. Like Christ in the church, it's love across difference. Like Christ in the church, it's love built on sacrifice. Like Christ in the church, it's a flesh-united, life-creating, never-ending, exclusive love. Marriage is meant to point us to Christ. You see, that's a glorious yes. That's a glorious vision to say yes to. Now, let me ask you, just before we move on to point three. As you were growing up, is that the vision that was given to you? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to lay hard money Not many of us were given that vision. That's the biblical vision. Those of you who have children, those of you who have children, I plead with you, give them that vision. Don't just give them a no. That is not sufficient. Give them the yes. Give them the yes. We are to be, a, we've been called out as a kingdom of priests and that has implications for all of life. Taking us now to the third point, these specific concerns. So, let's press into verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, I just have to say, as a qualifier, this is one message on something that a series of messages could be preached, and this is only on one text. I'm not going to even attempt to go everywhere and say everything that could be said. But we are here, so there are some things that need to be addressed. So first, the command. What is it that's being said? Just being clear, being clear. What is it that's being said? All male homosexual activity is being prohibited, and by extension, by inference, all female Homosexual activity is being prohibited, and in fact, it is being described as an abomination, something that is repulsive in the Lord's sight. Now, why is it being spoken of in this way? Oh, by the way, it's not just that act that's spoken of in that way. It's all the acts, the violations of his vision for his creational intent for sexual activity, everything we've read of in Leviticus 18, is described in this way too, not just verse 22. When you keep reading to the end of the chapter, that's what you see, okay? Now, why is it that this and all these other things are described in this way? Again, as we've alluded to, these acts, this way of living is, a, is at direct odds with God's creational design, and therein will bring a loss to human flourishing. Great loss, in whichever one of, one of these uh, manifestations we're talking about. So that's the command. Now, that said, it might be helpful to address some of the questions that are asked in, in our day about this command. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, how far you've gone into studying this sort of thing. But, but some will say, look, this doesn't hold, because, this isn't applicable for us today because what well, we need to understand, there are qualifications being given here. Qualifications such as this is in the context, I'm not, this is what is often said, this is in the context of pagan temple worship rituals, or perhaps it is referring to non-consensual sex. And so therefore, it's not, just, it's not about what we think of today as homosexual activity. I just have to say, we just have to be clear and say there's absolutely nothing in the text that justifies saying that. Nothing. Except reading something into it that's not there. Another thing, a question that's oftentimes posed regarding this passage is: Well, is it even still relevant? I mean, my goodness, it's in Leviticus for Pete's sake. We eat shellfish. So, does it have any bearing on our day today, given the fact that it's in Leviticus? Well. If you want to take that tact, then you have to throw out everything else that we've looked at in in chapter 18. And I'm not sure that's where you want to go. In addition to that, as we've already said, this is rooted not in culture, but in creation. So it's according to divine design for human flourishing. And then in addition to that, as you've already said, Fred, from Romans 1... The apostle Paul repeats this prohibition several times in the New Testament. So is it still binding? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's still binding on us today. So those are some of the specific concerns. Again, I know we could spend a lot more time on this. I want to drill down, though, on some application and spend a few minutes there, a bit longer than I oftentimes do at places of application. I was short on the last two points because I want to go long here, Okay. And, and I'm, I would ask that you pray even right now that, you would, that I would be able to say this, you know, the balance of truth and love. That's the balance with which we must speak, speak in all things, but most especially things that can be contentious and hard. So truth and love. Beginning with this, an acknowledgement that the church has oftentimes been tall in truth and short in love when it comes to this conversation. We do not want to force a choice on someone that would go something like this. I'm aching for companionship and intimacy, human uh, engagement, but I know that if I bring up my struggles in the context of this local church, I will be shunned and rejected. So therefore, I guess I'll have to go elsewhere for the companionship and the friendship and the intimacy. We do not want to force that choice on anyone. Think with me. A starving man or woman, if forced to choose between rotten food and starvation, what will they choose? The rotten food. We don't want to force that choice on someone. How do we do that? How do we oftentimes force that choice on people who are struggling with these things? By failing to listen. By failing to take the time to treat, one of, treat people as human beings and to, to listen. By, by beginning with our assumptions and then jumping to our conclusions about what they mean when they're raising doubts and questions and about buzzword phrases that we've just hyperventilated over. The church should be the safest place on the planet for anyone with any struggle to come and be vulnerable. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. Some other things to consider. What's the greatest need of every human being? What's the greatest need? Did you know? Think with me. Even in this context, even in this discussion, the greatest need of every human being is not to be straight. The greatest need of every human being is not to be heterosexual. The greatest need of every human being is Jesus. To be saved by Jesus. And he can work out the details from there. He is plenty able and plenty patient to work with a person from there. But the fundamental need is Jesus. So what's our greatest need? What if you're, I don't know. I don't know where you are this morning, but I just feel like there's a few things that have to be said going a little further. What do I do with my feelings on this? I've, I, I don't even know how to describe them, but what do I do with these? I plead with you, don't trust your feelings. Oh, my gracious, how many of us know in how many different areas of our lives we cannot trust our feelings or the, what the crowd is saying? Listen to what Jesus is saying in his word. Listen to what Jesus is saying in his word. Don't, please don't, don't be tyrannized by your feelings what about these desires? They run so deep within me. We just have to be honest and say, my friend, some desires are sinful. Not all, but I've got them. I'm a heterosexual married man. I have sinful desires of which I need to repent. We all do. We all do. That's not up for debate whether or not any person in this room has sinful desires but we must turn from them and not give in to them. That's the calling upon any follower of, of Jesus and to look unto him in faith, in hope, and in humble daily, if not hour by hour, obedience. What will I do, though, about this temptation, this un, un Wanted thought that comes to my mind. Oh, goodness, we're all prone to that, friend. We all are. Um, flee from it, but don't let yourself be shamed by it. Those unbidden, unwanted thoughts. Martin Luther, in a different context, put it this way Temptations, of course, cannot be avoided. But because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there's no need that we should let them nest in our hair. You can't help it when you're tempted. Jesus was tempted. The question is not, are you going to be tempted? The question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I cannot stress this, this enough, and I've alluded to it already, but this call to holiness... Is upon every follower of Jesus. The call to holiness is upon every follower of Jesus, whether you are same sex or other sex attracted. That call to holiness is upon us all, every single one of us. I wonder, perhaps it might do us well to just you know pray through that beautiful old hymn, "Jesus, Thy My." Uh, I, my cross, have taken. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. And oh, that we would be the church for each other. Because we can't do this alone in any of these things. Oh, that we would be the church for the watching world. That they would see another way. Because again, we've been called out to be a kingdom of priests. And this has implications in in everything. Let me come back. Let me pull back out of the, this uh, third point and come back to the big picture here. We've been talking much about what to do. Can we just think for a moment about who's called to do it and the astonishing reality of that as well? The astonishing reality of what we've been called to be and to do, but now thinking just for a moment of who it is that's called to be and do that. Here, here's an old story. Some of you may have heard this. It's, it is completely fictional, so don't think you're going to find it in fourth john or fifth peter or something like that it goes like this when jesus ascended to heaven he gathered the angels around and explained what he would do next he said he would take the weak and sinful and frail and filthy people that he saved and use them to be living stones to build the foundation of his kingdom on earth and they would be the ones to change the world the news was welcomed with an overwhelming silence After a long, agonizing pause, the angel Gabriel broke the silence by asking, Lord, what's plan B? (laughs) There is no plan B. His plan from the very beginning has been to take us, weak, sinful, frail, filthy people that he saved and to make us the foundation stones of his kingdom through which he would change the world there is no plan b and that is really 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 good news this is the way by which he plans to show the wonders of his grace to this entire world the whole the only hope of the world to the world That's really good news because what it means is it doesn't matter what your struggles are. It doesn't matter what your temptations are. It doesn't matter what your doubts are. It doesn't matter what your fears are. None of us are disqualified by any of those things to be used by God. So so you see, it's not just the astonishing thing we've been called to. It's the astonishing thing that who he's planning, who he's purposed and declared he's going to do this through us that he's called out to be a kingdom of priests in this world and it has implications in everything let's pray Lord Jesus you have said that we are to be holy holy in our walking in your ways and walking alongside with those who struggle to walk in your ways And, Lord, you know better than us how contentious these days are on these issues. Our dialogue, our conversations are marred not only by misunderstanding and failing to listen, but by fear and a failure to love. We ask that you, well, we thank you. We thank you for revealing to us our design, revealing to us your desire and making clear that as we do this, as we live out of these things, we will live. We will come to know shalom. Lives of holiness and love. May it be both. May it be both. I pray in your name. Amen.